0: You tax me for a wizard, you may as well tax me for a buzzard. I have done no harm. These words were spoken by George Jacobs Jr. during the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts in the late 17th century. An epidemic seemed to cross through the small Puritan region and was evil in nature. The area in which they took place seems like a picturesque, quaint colonial colony, which has had a shadowy stranglehold on the people of the Salem area, making them break out in fits, seizures, haunting their dreams. Or did they? The tale of the witches, the devil, or was it all mass hallucinations? All that and more on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need Need to know. know Information. information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping Stop your Remedial Welcome everyone to the Remedial Scholar. I am Levi. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you're new, thanks for coming. We're happy to have you. Uh, it's officially spoopy season, and with that, I felt it would be fun to have an episode on something that aligns with the season. Halloween is fast approaching, and the tales of monsters, ghouls, and witches fill the airwaves, and we are no different followers, really. But before we immerse ourselves in the bewitching world of the Salem Witch Trials, I have a few reminders. Once again, thank you for your unwavering support, all the reviews, ratings on apple podcast spotify pod chaser um keep those going we appreciate those share us with your friends you know that's that's the easiest way to support us sharing with everybody who you know doesn't already listen and then uh the merch we got we got merch going on um it's in the description or on the link tree under it's just a bar called merch so working on a couple new designs i tweaked one i tweaked the uh the off with our head one and put it on some shirts and i even ordered a couple myself so that then there's also i ordered some stickers so if you're interested in stickers you're gonna have to you know to email me because i don't have a way to sell those on a website yet but so email me at remedial at gmail.com and if you want to submit an idea for an episode uh do that through there as well so all that all that and the tip button obviously um is the best way to support us so you know enough of the formalities, self-promotion it's time to transport ourselves to a time when accusations of witchcraft cast a long shadow over a quiet new england village so without further ado salem woodstroke 20 people were killed in the name of god hundreds were arrested and 19 were hanged Picture the quiet colonial village gripped by an inexplicable madness as ordinary men and women ensnared in a web of paranoia. Accusations of flying, lives shattered, and a community torn apart. But before we get into that, I want to, you know, give a layout of how the episode's going to shake down. uh, As we you know move through this riveting historical narrative will unravel the myths and mysteries surrounding this dark period but you know it is a tale of paranoia superstition we got to give a little context so intro before moving into the background of the region and the people within it and then moving into the accusations the trials throughout that and then the resolution that sound good all right let's get into it the depths of american history few chapters are as enigmatic and chilling as the salem witch trials of the late 17th century Nestled in the massachusetts bay colony the village of salem with its you know cute little timber framed houses and a populace that was predominantly puritan seemed like an unlikely place for one of the most infamous episodes of mass hysteria in the new world or does it The massachusetts bay colony was founded by governor john winthrop and deputy governor thomas dudley Leading a group of a 1,000 Puritan refugees from England over the next decade, the Great Migration witnessed a substantial influx of approximately 20,000 Puritans migrating to Massachusetts and neighboring colonies. Of course, we know the Puritans fled religious persecution in England as they sought to reform the Anglican Church of England, which they felt was too closely associated with Catholicism and they faced opposition from King Charles because of it. In America, they aimed to create a society governed, socially structured and spiritually guided by their, the word Puritan even being one of mockery from their English homes, which, you know, described Christians who were seeking to purify the Church of England. They felt the Catholic opposition had far too much decadence and extravagant wealth, which can't say I really disagree. They felt the best way for worship was, a sim- was simplistic in nature with societal, social, structure to match they also believed in an individual spiritual connection with god as opposed to the anglican or catholic method which involved you know so many steps between one person and god with the priests and the nuns and the bishop and the mcdonald's ice cream machine repairman too many steps to obtain salvation they felt it was a direct line you know Person to God through prayers and worship. This transferred to uh, the churches themselves as well, where you had local churches being the end all be all. No pope instructing the rules or organizing them to make more sense. Because of this, there's some heavy puritanical laws in this place, or in place in this young community. Implemented in 1641 in the Massachusetts body of laws in section 94, titled Capital Laws. Witchcraft comes in second. Number one, worshiping any other god but the one true god. After those, blasphemy, murder, murder with passionate intent, poisoning, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, and kidnapping to round out the top 10. All those involved being put to death. Notice that the top three worst things you could do in these communities were to worship a different god, be a witch, or blaspheme. Murdering, still not great, but not as bad as those things. Little shocked and impressed that homosexuality was listed below bestiality. But, you know, they both end in death, so, you yeah, know, not great. These laws, they intended to uh, govern over their lovely new home to ensure the community be the closest to God that they could possibly be. They found themselves at odds with not just the indigenous tribes around, but even other Europeans that uh, attempt to settle near them. So unhinged with their beliefs that they even had odds against Quakers, which is wild to me, almost two sides of the same coin, and they had, uh, you know, imprisoned, mutilated, uh, did all sorts of weird things stuff to Quaker missionaries um, even put a couple to death until King Charles II decreed that corporal punishment not be used on Quakers in the early 17th century one such place Salem Village an outpost of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded it stood in stark contrast to the bustling Salem town just a few miles away which was uh, you know a thriving commercial center Salem village by contrast was quiet you know is agrarian and Pretty much a tale of two Salems going on. Salem Village is where the action happens today, for the most part. For those of you curious, Salem Town is modern-day Salem, while Salem Village is modern-day hell on Earth. Turns out the religious zealots were correct. Obviously, I am joking. Salem Village is where Danvers, Massachusetts is located today. Its inhabitants, the Puritans, you know... Fervently held to their strict religious beliefs, the colony's leaders saw themselves as uh, the chosen people establishing a a theocratic society in which religious dogma was the law. This fervent religiosity set the stage for the Salem witch trials. The Puritan's strict interpretation of Christianity permeated every aspect of their lives, and deviation from the norm was met with suspicion. Fear of the devil was ever-present, and any unusual occurrence was often attributed to his sinister influence. Salem was founded in 1629, adjacent to the, like I mentioned, larger and more po- prosperous Salem Town settlement. began as a agrarian community, as mentioned, commun- uh, populated by the Puritan settlers, you know, seeking freedom and establish a city upon a hill as their vision. Puritans strictly adhered to their interpretation of Christianity and views in. Uh, and viewed salem village as the place where they could practice their faith without persecution over time salem village developed its distinct identity separate from salem town contributing to the simmering tension that would later explode during the witch trials villagers had their church led by reverend samuel paris eventually whose arrival in 1689 marked a significant turning point. As mentioned, in the 17th century, Massachusetts was a Puritan stronghold governed by strict religious principles. The Puritans believed in predestination which asserted that God had already chosen who would be saved and be damned. This doctrine created anxiety and fear among the villagers as they constantly sought signs of God's favor or disfavor in their daily lives. A little paranoia. Of course, the villagers of Salem Village were deeply religious and their lives were centered around the church. The Puritan church was the heart of the community and religious leaders held significance, uh, significant influence. Any perceived threats to the religious purity of the village was taken very seriously. Socially, Salem Village was a hierarchical uh, society with a distinct class structure. The elite families like the Putnam's and the Porters held significant power and land while others struggled to make ends meet. Economic disparities and land disputes added to existing tensions. Land disputes varied from things like rights to graze, property markings, those kinds of things. These villagers were paranoid not only with the devil's work but also affairs of the people within Salem town as well as inside their own village. In the lead up to the witch trials, Salem village faced a series of challenges that set the stage for ensuing hysteria. Prior to the trials, the community was already grappling with tensions stemming from conflicts over land ownership, economic disparity, property disputes as I mentioned. These internal divisions were compounded by external hardships such as crop failures, Native American attacks. Political turmoil and harsh winters, fostering an atmosphere of unease and fear. The seeds of paranoia took root amidst this backdrop of uncertainty and religious fervor, laying the groundwork for a tragic events that would unfold during the witch trials. The church factions came to no surprise as they uh, had plenty of turmoil regarding finding a quality minister who would fit their criteria. Of course, Salem Village is just a mountain of drama. Their ministerial saga is like a soap opera. It's just all over the place. You know, in sixteen seventy two, villagers decided they wanted their own villi- uh, their own minister separate from Salem Town, no strings attached to them. But they couldn't pay a reasonable salary for the first two ministers. One will come up later. Then another one finally got uh pulled in, they agreed on a salary, but they wouldn't have him ordained. So I don't know what the deal was with them. They finally agree on Samuel Paris, uh the first ordained minister of Salem Village, kind of. Uh, it was a battle of opinions over this guy. Fast forward to June 18, 1689, and the villagers finally agree to hire Paris for 66 pounds a year, with one-third in cash and the rest in provisions plus keys to the parsonage. Reverend Samuel Paris, the controversial village minister, known for his strict preaching and also you know, the salary disputes that put him there. Following that, he had created factions within the church, further polarizing the community. Even after sealing the deal, a bunch of folks still couldn't warm up to the guy. Drama, drama, drama. Although I can't imagine he was actually that picky about his salary. They probably were mad they had to pay him at all. Oh, you need some money to survive? What are you, Catholic? Anyway. 1692, the stage is set for catastrophe. Salem Village was a powder keg ready to explode as tensions and paranoia grew. In January 1692, the seeds of the infamous Salem Witch Trials were planted when Elizabeth Paris and Abigail Williams began to display bizarre behavior. Experiencing violent convulsions and seizures, the afflicted girls contorted their bodies in unnatural positions, displaying evident signs of physical distress. During these episodes, the girls engaged in unusual speak, uttering strange and unintelligible languages or gibberish. As peculiar speech became uh, fodder for interpretations often linked to claims of obviously demonic possession or witchcraft. Complaints of physical pain were frequent with the girls alleging pinching, pricking, stabbing by unseen forces. Such complaints fueled their belief that witches employed invisible means to inflict harm the afflicted girls reported moment uh moments of loss of sensation describing numbness or paralysis in specific parts of their body hallucinations were part of the ordeal some accounts suggest that the girls saw spectral figures and animals invisible to others they'd also eventually be seeing like specters of specific people in their dreams. Fits of hysteria were a common occurrence triggered by perceived threats or presence of certain individuals. These fits were characterized by intense emotional outbursts in some instances. Observers noted that the girls imitated animal behavior, crawling on the floor, barking, making animal-like sounds. Doctors spoke that they could not identify what the ambulance were, but believed it to be supernatural. Which, (laughs) of course, and also kind of makes sense for the time, if I didn't have any, you know, basic medical knowledge like if i didn't know the things i know now and i was just thrown in 17th century and this little kid started doing all this i'd be like that kid has got some issues to say the least the peculiar episode quickly escalated as other girls in the community including ann putnam jr mercy lewis marcy walcott and elizabeth hubbard also exhibited similar symptoms as February rolled in, the local physician William Griggs made a shocking diagnosis attributing the girl's symptoms to witchcraft. This pronouncement set the stage for a series of dramatic events. Even worse, it was a leap year. February 29th, the magistrates John Hawth I don't think that has anything to do with it, but I mean, they are super superstitious, right? Extra if you will. And I can't imagine that didn't play into it. Anyway, <laughs> on February 29th, magistrates John Hawthorne and Uh, Jonathan Corwin interrogated Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba, who would become the first individuals accused of witchcraft. Who are these women? Easy targets in my opinion. Tituba was the slave of the Paris family, Sarah Osborne, mother of Ozzie, that makes more sense. No, Sarah Osborne was a poor elderly woman, (laughs) Ozzie's old enough, it could be his mom. Uh, Sarah Osborne was a poor elderly woman who was considered an outsider to the village. Sarah Good, also an outsider as well as homeless. so. You have a slave, an old lady, and a homeless lady. Of course they're witches. Can't you tell they've made deals with the devil by how high in society they live? Following day, March 1st, these three women are arrested, brought to jail, and they were subject to interrogations. As soon and soon enough, the first confession was obtained. While Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne stuck to their innocence, Tituba confessed the implication of Good and Osborne both. Remembering that Tituba was a slave and the slave to the minister of town, or of Salem village, I'm guessing self-preservation and coercion was a cause for the confession. Little side note, tijibo was a slave of the West Indies, quote-unquote, Indian, listed in the description, but, uh, you know, she's indigenous to South America, which is not really important, but I, I felt like it, you know, just wanted to add it. I think, luckily for her, the uh, confession made her avoid the craziness that would manifest later. The actual record is available, and I have summarized it to be. Um, Hutchinson questions Tichuba about her involvement with evil spirits. Tichuba denies hurting the children, but admits serving the devil. <gasps> gasp. She names four women, including Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, who allegedly told her to harm the children. Tituba describes encounters with a tall man of Boston, a hog-like and dog-like appearance, <laughs> and two rats that instructed her to serve them by hurting children. She mentions being threatened and coerced even when asked about Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Tituba describes their supposed familiars, a yellow bird and a creature with a head like a woman, two legs, and wings. Tituba also claims to have seen a cat with Sarah Good and describes the appearance of a tall man in black clothes and a woman in white and black hood. Despite being asked who is currently tormenting the children, uh, Tituba pretty much goes, I don't know, I can't, I can't tell you that, like I, I'm blind to that information, is what she said specifically. The hysteria intensifies through March and April of 1692. Accusations and arrests continue to spread. Prominent figures like Martha Corey, Rebecca Nurse, found themselves accused and imprisoned. Bridget Bishop was brought in on the 19th of April, and when she entered, all the inflicted girls, you know, started to writhe and convulse. This is also not her first time with uh, you know being suspected of witchery. When her second husband, yes, second of three. Gosh, seems like a witch already. No, but uh, when her second husband died, she was uh, suspected of killing him by bewitchment. Isn't that fun? Now she was in the sights of all weirdos all over again. I bet she regretted not moving after that. Bridget Bishop faced accusations in court with the afflicted uh, claiming she had bewitched them, asked about the allegations she vehemently denied knowing the uh, accusers or being in that place before. The afflicted described injuries inflicted by her, a torn coat was presented as evidence. Accusations of causing her first husband's death were also raised, which, you know, she pleaded ignorance. Despite her protests of innocence and claims not understanding the accusations, the court noted her seemingly bewitching actions. When confronted with other statements, she insisted she knew nothing of conf- confessions or being a witch. The court pressed her, uh, pressed her on her involvement with familiar spirits. But she maintained her innocence, stating that she did not know what a witch was. As questioning continued, contradictions emerged, leading to the suspicion about her truthfulness. Throughout the proceedings, Bridget Bishop adamantly declared her innocence, even in the face of mounting evidence and testimony." So, basically, what we have now is they're throwing so many questions at her that she's starting to get confused, <laughs> and then they're like, ha, really? interesting so yeah in response to escalating accusations of witchcraft the growing need for legal intervention governor governor william phipps marked a pivotal decision in may 27 1692 he formally establishes the court of oyer and terminer a legal body specifically tasked with hearing and decisions uh, deciding cases related to witchcraft this court marks a significant turning point as you know this is when it starts to be real official um and it is an official response with it you know, to the mounting hysteria. Its creation sets the stage for a series of trials and legal proceedings that will shape the fate of, you know, many accused individuals in the months to come. The court appointed William Sutton, who was at the ripe young age of 59 to 61, depending on the sources. May 29th saw the first death of an accused witch, albeit one that made sense. Sarah Osborne died in prison, because, you know, the conditions are terrible. And <laughs> weirdly enough, everybody lists her as being, like, super elderly. Like, I'm picturing this ancient lady. But then, all of them also say she was like around 49, which I guess 49 in those times was different, but like you know, she was probably malnourished in the prison and you know cuz she was poor as well as just being in prison. But you know, if she's elderly, then what does that make, you know, Judge Stoughton? Ancient? Like the court of Oyer and Terminer was off and cooking, but Nathaniel Saltonstall, a respected judge over the Oyer and Terminer p- panel, expressed his displeasure with the trial's direction, ultimately walking away from the uh, process despite his disapproval, the trial continued leading to Bridget Bishop's execution on June 10th, absence of key judges, including Hawthorne, Corwin, and gidney raising uh, raised criticism for their failure to witness the consequences of their actions. minister john hale was present for bridget's final moments offering prayer and benediction george corwin led bridget to the exclu- execution platform where he tied her hands and secured the noose A crowd of onlookers had varied mixed reactions some shocked others disgusted by the accusations themselves I think one positive note is that the supposed victims were present, and you know the ultimate response to their accusations came as Bridget was hanged and left to be displayed for days after. Six days later, another death occurred, although this one another prison death. Roger Toothaker, a farmer dabbling healer, died in prison while awaiting trial. I can see why he was there. Irony was not lost on old old Robert because he was allegedly a person who could find witches beforehand, like before the trials started. He. You know, uh, who better to find a witch than a witch themselves, right? He also told people that his daughter was taught by him and she hunted he didn't even kill the witch. And the end of the month brought the biggest sweeping allegations with indictments against Sarah Good who had been uh, accused but not tried yet. And Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, John and Elizabeth Proctor, Dorcas Hoare, Dorcas Hoare. I don't know. I don't. H <laughs> O A R. Sarah Wilds, Martha Carrier, and Rebecca Nurse had been in jail already, you know, for being accused earlier on, but were brought with new accusations when Mercy Lewis identified them as being the source of new ailments stricken on the Putnam children. Adding to the confu- or adding confusion to this, was the fact that Judge Stoughton believed believed that any person that the children described as being actors in their peril. Other magistrates were concerned with the fact that the devil had power to betray others and thus innocent people could be convicted. This add his layer of confusion and stress to honor a confusing and stressful moment in time. Rebecca Nurse, a revered member of the Salem Village Church faced a dark fate as her life became entangled in the web of the invisible evidence during the Salem witch trials. Despite her respected status the ominous cloud of accusations cast a shadow plunging her into the realm of uncertainty and darkness. The trial started as witch fanfare can also be seen as property disputes which had roots in deeper conflicts including long-standing feuds between you know the porters and the Putnam's. Rebecca Nurse who had married into Salem town family found herself in the crossfire due to her association with the wealthier porters dispute over property lines exacerbated tensions and the decades-long conflicts between those families reached a boiling point as the accusations of witchcraft spread rebecca nurse an elderly woman in her 70s found herself accused despite her upstanding reputation and contributions to the local church two additional factors contributed to the uh, accusations against rebecca nurse firstly she was a member of the salem town church not subjected to the strict requirements of the salem village church causing resentment secondly her compassionate act of taking in an orphan quaker child stirred suspicion among those who viewed any deviation from puritan christianity as a manifestation of evil how dare you rescue this infant (laughs) or not an infant a child but still orphan child anyway They just wanted Quaker Batman, I think. Rebecca's husband, Francis, added another layer to the conflict by being part of the committee attempting to remove Reverend Paris from his role as village minister. The complexity of her situation showcased the deep-seated division within the community. However, Rebecca Nurse's family, seasoned in dealing with adversity, possessed connections and resilience. Yet, as the witch trials unfolded, even their experience would be tested. Rebecca would need every ounce of support to navigate the challenging weeks that lay ahead. Many people had gone on the offensive of Rebecca, thanks thanks to a lot of the disagreements between her and the others in Salem, and, you know, the Puritans in general. Reverend Paris had not been sneaky in his condemnation of actions similar to those of Rebecca in his sermons, you know because, as this is going on this isn't the only thing there's still church going on people are still doing normal stuff so in the months leading up to her trial he had portrayed the workings of evil in their town and embellishment on the facts of an, in an effort to point to the evil in been, you know in their midst the judges anticipated rebecca nurse's compliance in the Oyer and terminal trial but it backfired rebecca's family mounted a robust defense presenting character witnesses with stories that cast doubt on the afflicted girls testimony elizabeth hubbard a key accuser faced challenges to her credibility with instances suggesting deception and exaggeration rebecca's daughter sarah nurse testified against an accuser exposing what she deemed a farce even surprising allies john and rebecca putnam stood up for rebecca nurse challenging accusations related to their daughter's death despite their effort despite these efforts the jury initially declared Rebecca not guilty causing the courthouse you know uh, <laughs> causing chaos in the courthouse however old Judge Stoughton intervened pointing out testimony contradictions and the jury sought clarification from Rebecca who being deaf couldn't respond effectively so the jurors reversed their decision finding Rebecca Nurse guilty marking you know you know the end of her pretty much Following Rebecca's trial, the court proceeded with other cases in Sarah, including Sarah Good and Susanna Martin's. Sarah Good's trial lacked the support of fervor and uh, witnesses in Rebecca's defense. Tituba, the Paris uh, household slave from earlier, testified against Sarah Good, providing a narrative consistent with her earlier statements. Sarah Good was found guilty on all three counts of uh, witchcraft, Susanna Martin, an elderly widow from Amesbury, Are you sensing a pattern yet? Face a grim reception in the courtroom. Afflicted girls reacted strongly to her presence, with some even supposedly vomiting blood. This is a theme that we're going to get into where, you know, the afflicted would react. In wild manners, when the accused were brought in the courtroom, although they knew they were coming in, so it's not like, oh man, I'm surprised. Like they knew, like we're bringing in so and so, and they're like, okay. And then as soon as they came in, they're like, ah, some interesting overlapping going on, in my opinion, uh from the experiment uh, experiments episode, you yeah. know. Tell me that some of these people weren't being influenced by authority figures in these moments. Even if anyone had bewitched anyone else, they were conflicting stories and evidenced contrary and it was just blatantly ignored. On July 19th, 1692, a grim fateful day for Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds faced their final moments. Atmosphere was charged with tension and fear as these individuals were led to the gallows for execution by hanging. Their confessions all applied under duress and convicted after these you know, dubious trials. Things got more heated following those executions. Enter Anne Foster. Anne Foster, a frail widow in her 70s, found herself entangled in the web of accusations as well. The troubles for the Foster family began with a horrifying murder four years prior. Anne's daughter Hannah, pregnant with her eighth child, was brutally murdered by her husband, Hugh Stone, in the middle of town. Stone, executed for the crime, blamed the Foster family, saying that Hannah's contentious nature led him to commit the heinous act. Anne Foster's woes continued as her teenage granddaughter, Marcy Lacey, or Mary Lacey, ran away from ran away from home, further fueling the perception that the family was wild and unruly. When Timothy Swan, an outsider tainted with tainted past, accused Anne Foster of witchcraft, the rumors gained enough traction to land her before the magistrates in Salem. Physically frail and unable to walk, and was carted to town for examination. The line between examination and trial blurred as the in the minds of the community, a ray of hope emerged in the arrival of John Higginson, Higginson Jr., a newcomer to the magistrates' teams, known for his logical and cautious approach. However, Anne Foster took an unexpected turn by confessing to be a witch right away. She described encounters with the devil in the form of a colorful bird echoing imagery used by tituba the paris slave in her confession foster implicated martha carrier claiming that she had been trained by carrier for six years over three days of examinations and foster confessed to attending witch meetings and flying on wooden sticks with other witches including martha carrier and the minister george burroughs The accusations led to vivid descriptions and nicknames such as King and Queen of Hell for Carrier and Burroughs. The situation became more complex as Foster portrayed herself in the stereotypical image of a witch, old woman riding through the night sky on a wooden broomstick. Meanwhile, Mercy Lewis and Elizabeth Hubbard concluded their own witch-finding investigation in Andover. Joseph Ballard, seeking a cure for his wife's illness, traveled to Salem to file a complaint against Anne Foster and her daughter Marcy Lacy Senior and her granddaughter Marcy Lacy Junior. That's right. Lady, senior, and juniors. I didn't know that was a thing, but it makes sense, I suppose. This also saw the big introduction of confessions. Yes, there were a few convictions, like the one made by Tituba, but these were like detailed, full of creativity. This also coincides with the fact that when you confessed, it seemed that you lived. You know, Tituba testified against Sarah Good at the beginning of the trial before anything even happened, and... Bridget Bishop, on the other hand, screamed her innocence until she, you know, her throat was snapped. So, you know, there was something to it in their, in their heads. They also started to confess to, like, about people who had already been hanged, which points towards the benevolent act of the accusations. Like, yes, I'm a witch. And, you know, who else was a witch? Sarah Good. Like, she definitely was a witch. And she's already dead, right? Now Anne specifically was accusing people that she trusted, her children and grandchildren, which could be seen as a way to line stories up and maintain their lives. You know, their stories were lining up when they interviewed, when they were interviewed separately, which made the authorities believe they spoke the truth. But in reality, they were being held um, in the same question or in the same prisons, and then led to the answers of the questions by the authorities, like they were leading the witnesses uh, essentially. So at night they could court. Quar- You know, corroborate everything, make it easier on themselves. Now, Burrows that she mentioned, he's fascinating on his own right. The so-called king of hell, he was one of a few failed ministers of Salem Village that I mentioned earlier. Only 12 years prior to the trials, he was uh, he was the the village minister for a couple years. However, his peculiarities set him apart. He lacked formal ordination, and he had a whole Harvard education, big fancy man. But he's also surrounded by a bunch of different rumors. You know, his relationships, Turkey. particularly with his wives are shrouded in mystery, but there's hints of brutality and controlling behavior. Accusations suggest that he either beat him or, you know, was just super controlling. His insistence on them keeping his secrets raised questions about the nature of these hidden truths. As Burroughs faced the trial on August 5th, the courtroom buzzed with anticipation, drawing a sizable crowd today. Ministers from all along the coast gathered to witness a fellow minister Burroughs stand trial. Their motives were uncertain, silent support or sense of vulnerability for their own safety, who knows, considering the Massachusetts authorities reduced protection for communities. Burroughs' supernatural strength and cunning were d- debated, you know, derived from exaggerated tales of the uh, Native American assault in Maine, which he was uh, part of the defense. Despite his courtroom strategy, the trial's chaos painted him as a trickster, reinforcing his king of hell reputation. Witnesses accused him of tormenting, leading witch, in- witch covens, and plotting against the Puritan experiment. Some even witnessed specters flying about the courtroom while more fits emanated from the victims. One girl supposedly saw the bloody faces of George's wives, whom it was supposed that he beat was now essentially being accused of killing them burroughs fought fiercely though using his impressive intellect and harvard education he even quoted a man who wrote about the dispelling of witches as an excuse for shoddy physicians but like others succumbed to the convictions even the gathered ministers left believing in his guilt burroughs and others including elizabeth proctor were sentenced to hang by death as execution date neared an earthquake off jamaica was reported and um, you know kind of the news circulated back to Salem, and they were like, Oh, man, can you believe that? The earth is shaking, uh, and this is, you know, perceived as retaliation for attacking the king and queen of hell. Burroughs recited the uh, Lord's Prayer, which created moment of doubt, but it, you know, uh, while he was being hanged, like as they were tying the noose around his neck, he was reciting reciting the Lord's Prayer. But it couldn't alter, you know, his inevitable fate that awaited him and the others. Their execution signaled the indiscriminate fury of the witchcraft trials, fueled by fear, panic, and religious conviction, leaving state leaving Salem with a stark realization anyone could be the next target on the 19th of august another swath of accused is led to the gals george burroughs martha carrier george jacobs john proctor john willard all marched to swing you may notice that lack of one name that i had mentioned elizabeth proctor actually she pleaded her belly similar to what mary reed and Ann bonnie did in the Second pirates episode i did episode three if you're curious elizabeth escaped the gallows but the same could not be said about her husband Despite the uh, numerous attempts at petitioning, even amassing 51 total signatures from two different petitions from many well-to-do people, um, I shouldn't mention if you haven't listened to that episode. Pleading your belly just means you're pregnant, so they they wouldn't kill you because they'd killed a baby, right? So that's that's what that meant. Anyway, George Burroughs, like I said, once a rope was placed placed around his neck, began to recite the Lord's Prayer. The crowd was confused. You know, Cabotian stirred before the gallows. Uh, before the group were all hanged, Cotton Mather, one of the leads in the cause to save the village from the witches, stated that this was just a trick of the devil. Only the devil could allow one of his servants to break the rule that these freaks decided was a thing. Witches and people of the devil's nature were thought to not be able to recite the Lord's Prayer. Until now, I guess all five executed uh, to add to the growing number. Eleven people having met their end in the Kangaroo Witch trial. The next day, twentieth, the next day, the twentieth of August, Margaret Jacobs recanted her testimony, which, you know, led to the death of her grandfather, George Jacobs and Burroughs as well, I'm guessing the guilt of seeing the swinging bodies had something to do with it. The most gruesome and memorable part of the story comes next, at least most memorable for me. Things have been quiet from um, uh, mid-August into September, but the ninth month brought more insanity on September 9th because only cool things happened on the 8th. Six more people are entered into the trials. Martha Corey, Mary Eastie, Alice Parker, Ann, Ann Podater, Dorcas Hoare, and... Uh, and mary bradbury are all sentenced to hang before this group was set to hang something uh some things happened martha cory was targeted for a multiple uh few multiple reasons namely multiple husbands and a child out of wedlock who was also of mixed race and also you know when giles her husband accidentally revealed the details of how she reads strange books she could read burn the witch another piece was that uh, giles attempted to attend an earlier examination of witches she had removed his saddle from the horses so he couldn't leave this act was seen as her attempting to hide the truth another bit was that when uh, a few locals in early march were trying to suss out some suspects and putting them uh, told them that martha was one of the uh, uh, was the one so they asked her what she wore like they asked Anne what martha was wearing when she tormented her so they visited her only to be greeted by Martha stating I know what you're coming for you're coming to talk with me about being a witch and (laughs) and when told that Ann Putnam told the two men she said does she tell you what clothes I have on which probably blew their minds right with how dumb everybody in this story seems to be definitely no possibility of anyone finding anything out elsewhere uh, like despite being a witch hopefully nobody like just rumor milling like hey i think they're gonna come down to the quarry house keep in mind she's 72 at this point or around about 72 she has little time for games of children you know she might as well be an ancient god from egypt being 72 in 1692 so she was arrested on march 19th finally being tried on september 9th giles had given testimony that went against his wife but you know looking at some of it kind of seems like they were going to take his word against her regardless of if he supported her or not so when he had a realization of what his words had done Giles attempted to recant the so-called confession this only brought further suspicion upon him 82 year old farmer with a checkered past as well see Giles was a farmer's farmer rough gruff spoke from the gut did not take you know to this puritan style very well he swore he was aggressive and he was even convicted of murdering a man whom he beat to death and was only given a fine to pay The man was one of his farmhands who it was said was even on was you know on the dim-witted side so not a good look for giles right soon after accusations began to be pushed towards him giles was arrested after almost a month after his wife so he sat in prison day in day out until september as well and the only solace he probably had was that he was in prison with his wife when his turn to be put on trial arrived he was Brought in and asked to enter a plea, he said not guilty, and then he also refused to be put to the court, which is essentially taking the stand. Giles had not made it to 82 in the 17th century by being an idiot or unobservant. He saw what was going down and on the court of September 9th and realized that all these people who accused him were all were you know involved in that trial, and he had no way of getting out. He couldn't petition like the boroughs or the proctors. He didn't have the connections like some of the others who. Uh, to escape and live a fruitful life he had one decision and that was to go out on his own terms and not theirs so when he was charged with the standing mute an order was given giles was to be pressed until he spoke or perished whichever occurred sooner something interesting to note but pressing was illegal in massachusetts at the time by a government order but that didn't stop this circus from doing it anyway in a dramatic turn of events the day I preceding giles Corey's scheduled punishment brought about significant and somber development the salem town church in response to Corey's steadfast refusal to stand trial made the grave decision to excommunicate him the ecclesiastical act severed him from religious community intensifying the isolation he experienced as a result of his you know principled stand against the proceeding so basically you're not going to heaven it in, in his eyes right like because that's what they felt it was you know you are excommunicated, you're done. Despite the weighty consequences of excommunication, Corey remained unyielding in his resolve. Efforts to persuade him to reconsider his stance proved futile, underscored the depths of his you know, commitment and defiance in the face of the witchcraft trials. On September 17th or 18th, one of the two, Corey was led to an open pasture with a chilling practice of peneforte et d'or, awaited him. This barbaric form of torture involved placing a person on the ground, covering their body with flat boards, um, which. Would form a makeshift platform across their body, and then heavy stones were systematically added, imposing excruciating pressure on the individual's chest. In Corey's case, this ordeal unfolded, like I said, in an open field accentuating the brutality of the punishment physical toll of the stones pressing down on his chest was immense yet remarkably Corey remained resolute his refusal to confess despite the excruciating pain spoke volumes about his unwavering determination and commitment to his principles even in the face of one of the most brutal forms of torture Corey maintained his innocence in a poignant and a powerful moment as his strength waned and his life hung in the balance Corey managed to muster the energy for one final act of defiance when sheriff corwin repeatedly asked confession giles remained silent over two days this happened slowly adding more weight to the platform giles refusing to confess soon his face was bloodshot his tongue practically forced from his body and this is the most metal moment in history the smug sheriff kneeling beside the tortured 82 year old farmer offering freedom and reprieve from all the pressure if all he did was confess giles struggled to form the words but when he did all he said was more weight that gives me goosebumps that's so hardcore like this sheriff probably did not expect him to live as long as he did but the hardened 17th century farmer you know just kept living just a stout dude with the most you know old man strength imaginable so he just keeps living keeps being alive and then insults the whole process when he said he wants more weight instead of freedom respect to giles dude the execution of giles Corey by pressing a, you know grim milestone in the history of massachusetts bay colony it served as the first and last instance of such brutal form of you know punishment slash execution in the region it is technically listed as an execution but it was not supposed to be at first like they literally just wanted him to talk corey's resilience and unwavering commitment to his principles even in the face of torture and death left a lasting impression on the collective memory of the witch trials symbolizing the courage of those who refused to yield to the unfounded accusations at the time also think it sparked a moment of hey what the heck is going on here from not only villagers but outsiders as well you have people like increase mather who i always thought had an intimidating name uh publishing his stance on spectral evidence things that his own son had been so passionate about using during the trial increase has a quote that goes we're better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned and it's too bad he wasn't running the show uh within the next week giles's wife martha along with seven others mary eastie Alice parker samuel uh and mary parker and amputator uh, william reed and margaret scott all uh hanged so and we have 19 that have been hanged plus jobs being pressed to death 20 plus one the ones that died in prison prison what a mess and this isn't even the end mary eastie before her death obviously had written a letter to sir william phipps you know the governor governor i mentioned earlier who was the royal governor since they're still under british control she had petitioned him not only to say not to save her life, but, to, you know, prevent this from going further. Basically, her letter stated, I am now condemned to die. The Lord knows my innocence. I petition your honors, not for my own life, for I know I must die and my appointed time is set, but that no more innocent blood be shed, which undoubtedly cannot be avoided in the way of the course you go. So Willie Phipps was aware of what was happening. Obviously, he he instituted the warrior and but he didn't really know that it was going to go off the rails at this point he wasn't super concerned he was aware of the trials as they began but honestly he was kind of into it in fact you know phipps did actively engage in what was happening seeing you know word spread about the things happen in salem phipps acted by stating that public writing should not discuss the ongoing trial so that's not great i mean it didn't work but that's not a great idea. Was also not an idea that his own buddies listened to. Cotton Mather, who we've met a little bit so far, uh, was writing his own tales of events going on, and that was okay because Cotton was really just all over the place in regards to the trials. <laughs> over the course of the trials, he simultaneously concurred that they should not be, you know, hurl random accusations with anybody, but also deemed them to be, you know, the most important things going on. This was also a man who was heavily respected by everyone in the Puritan community, so those kinds of things would really get people you know wily and worked up basically working in direct contradiction to the things his own father increase was saying at the time increase wasn't alone and even as the as directed that the trials should not be publicly discussed more people expressed dissatisfaction with it even though they considered the battle with evil forces to be an important one they weren't ready to sacrifice liberties that they believed their fellow settlers were owed another person who wasn't pumped about the whole ordeal was mary phipps the governor's wife she had then been accused herself following this reveal and now, the governor was essentially forced to make a decision. He had already been contemplating stepping in, feeling that there could be cause for action, thinking that the danger of a court who could accuse anyone at any time, and with the method of allowing spectral evidence wholeheartedly without any caution, could be too much. He also considered what the thinking could be with his wife now accused, should he act, what people would feel about him stepping in. Despite this, on October 29th, Governor Phipps dissolved the controversial court of and Terminator, been mounting doubts about its fairness. In late October, Phipps established the the Superior Court of Judicature to handle the remaining cases more judiciously, I guess didn't quite end things but it did mark a dropping point in november on the 25th the new court was instated and they began to look at some of the cases of the accused that had been left in jail for months starting to re-examine the cases and essentially take taking out the ones where spectral evidence was the end-all be-all of their condemnation abigail faulkner was one who was waiting for the birth of her child to be hanged and petitioned the governor to expedite the review and then she was let free john proctor's son benjamin also left prison soon enough many more from the different areas were soon beginning to be released as well prisoners from andover the neighboring town in boston as well as salem were all being given their freedoms if they could afford it one man who escaped early on returned to boston uh feeling free to do so uh and paid a fine and he was pretty much just okay cool like i said they were all paying fines and bail prices not that the courts were overturning convictions yet And foster the woman who uh, had thrown her own family under the bus so to speak died in prison in december of 1692 Conditions really just awful in general and now you have winter on top of it her family trying to reclaim her body to you know barry uh, was told to pay massive amounts of money that she was accrued during her stay in prison which is kind of messed up you can kind of see the writing won't well, like on the wall you can see that the circus is ending but you gotta squeeze any bit you can out of the people. Another despicable thing that was going on was the children that were left in prison. Sarah Good who was killed to be Sarah Good who was executed pretty early on back in July well she was in prison in March and her daughter Dorothy was jailed with her so she's you know she's just been in prison that whole time. December also saw her freedom when a Good Samaritan literally uh his name was Sam his good Sam uh paid her bond of 50 pounds which is you know about $11,000 in America today the actual new trial would begin in January of 1693 and there were still people in prison who could not afford the bail so they continued to wait in the harsh weather winter weather by early 1693 the remaining acu- accused individuals were released from jail signaling the end of the dark chapter in the cold confines of Salem town uh, Salem's town meeting house the uh Superior Court convened, uh, marking a stark shift from the previous sweltering summer trials. The jurors, including intri- the, injur- the jurors including the intriguing choices like Jacob Town or Richard Reed, gathered for a trial focused on evidence rather than spectral accusation. The first case was presented on January 4th, introducing new legal landscape that excluded the spectral evidence. Strict rule detailed the specific crimes uh, subject to punishment, distancing the court from earlier superstitions. On this transformed stage, the cases unfolded differently. Terms ignoramus marked many indictments as unworthy of trial. Notably, Margaret Jacobs, the granddaughter of George Jacobs Sr., uh, who recanted her confession, signaling the shift in proceedings. Uh, The atmosphere changed from fear to celebration as acquittals were handed out, symbolizing the triumph of cold logic over superstition. However, a shock awaited on January 9th when Sarah Hooper Wardwell was declared guilty, challenging the new co- newfound confidence. This conviction sent a powerful mech- message that hope was not guaranteed. Meanwhile, a group of minors, including Martha Carrier's son, uh, minors as in children, <laughs> not like <laughs> minors, uh, faced indictments adding to the community's unease. As trials progressed, over 50 cases were presented, but only a few went on trial, with the re- three resulting in gu- guilty verdicts. The once feared justice, uh, the once feared justice, Stoughton's influence waned, and his rush to execute prisoners caught the attention of the Attorney General Anthony Checkley. Governor Phipps confronted Stoughton's overreach and had a decision to make. On January 17th, Stoughton's defense of a messenger sent by the Crown led to a uh, falling out with Phipps. This incident marked a turning point. The governor leaned. You know, towards restraint, but questions Stoughton's actions as Snow covered Salem on February one. Stoughton entered the meeting house, intended on you know conclude the tri- trials triumphantly. However, a messenger from Phipps delivered a startling announcement: all eight convicted witches had been reprieved. Stoughton, consumed by rage, abandoned the court, leaving his uh, leaving a sobering reality: justice had been obstructed, in his opinion, and the king kingdom of satan had not retreated the community haunted by the tragedy grappled with the aftermath knowing that no reprieve could resurrect the innocent lives lost samuel paris tried to begin to reconcile his flock but many were scorned by you know his his part in it They felt justifiably so that he spearheaded the early investigations of these moments and led to the deaths of their loved ones tried to get the nurse family that of you know rebecca nurse to return to the church And they weren't so stoked about that. Weird. Her husband and sons met with the Paris family, uh, Paris privately, and gave him a piece of their minds on separate occasions. Like, one after the other would go in and basically just scream at him. Which, makes sense. Others of the community would do the same. The last few cases were not thrown out by, uh, the new grand jury. Sputtered upon the lack of spectral evidence, and the last few were found not guilty in May of sixteen ninety three. Oddly enough, one of the first accused had been in jail since the beginning and was finally spared. Tichiba, the slave of the Paris family, had been in prison since March of sixteen ninety two, over a year. And she had been abandoned by the Paris family. Being as how she was a slave, she was left in prison with them not willing to pay for the fine for her release. She was essentially confiscated by the state and sold off to recoup fines of, you know, the imprisonment. Not sure what the worst part of her story is. The fact that she was manipulated and used to kill off so many people or that they left her to die in jail or worse when they were done with her. In a complete 180 of Samuel Paris, Samuel Sewell, a judge on the trial but not lead judge, offered an apology in his failure to promote justice and was regretful that in what had taken place, he requested full blame while Sarah while Paris put the blame of God testing the community with this with these challenges of these moments. In seventeen oh two, the Massachusetts General Court officially declared the trials unlawful, and jurors publicly expressed remorse for their role in the tragic events, providing a somber reflection on the devastating consequences of the Salem Witch trials. In seventeen oh six Ann Putnam, who was one of the main accusers, like one of the first ones, publicly apologized for hand in the trial, and I'm sure everyone was, you know, real sorry for her. Her apologies has followed. I desire to be humbled before God for the sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92. That I, then being in my childhood, should by such providence of God be made an instrument of the accusing of several persons of a grievous crime, whereby their lives taken away from them whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived in me that sad time whereby I just I justly fear I have been instrumental with others though ignorantly and unwillingly to bring up upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Though what was said or done by me against any person I can truly and uprightly say before God and man, I did it not out of anger, malice, or ill will to to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. What I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan, and particularly as I was a chief instrument of accusing Goodwife Nurse and her two sisters I desire I desire to lie in the dust and be humbled for it in that I was a cause with others of so sad of so sad a calamity to them and their families which cause I desire to lie in the dust and earnestly beg for forgiveness from God and from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense whose relations were taken away or accused Dude, that old-timey language is rough to read. In 1711, the colony of Massachusetts restored the names of those convicted via legislative measure that also gave 600 pounds of restitution to those who had been killed to their heirs. This equates to over 100 100 grand in today's dollars. In 1752, Salem Village was renamed Danvers, and in 1957, the state formally apologized for the events of 1692. Couldn't get that out any sooner, huh? In 1992, a uh, memorial was dedicated to the event and the innocent lives lost was constructed. Full list of people died during the trials is as follows Sarah Osborne died in prison May 10th, 1692. Bridget Bishop, June 10th. 1692 uh, Rod, Roger Toothaker, June 16th 1692 July 19th 1692 Sarah Good Rebecca Nurse Elizabeth Howe Susanna Martin Sarah Wilds All hanged August 19th 1692 Reverend George Burroughs George Jacobs Sr. Martha Carrier John Proctor John Willard All hanged September 19th 1692 Giles Corey Pressed September 22 1692 Martha Corey Mary Eastie Mary Parker Alice Parker and Poudeter William Wilmot Red. Margaret Scott, Sam uh, Samuel Wardwell, Senior, all hanged, December third, sixteen ninety two, and Foster. And that really ends the direct story of the trials themselves. But there's plenty of uh, discussion, possible reasons, aftermath. So let's get into some of those theories about what caused it. Of course, the prevailing theory was at the time the legitimate, legitimate devil possession and witchcraft. But there's no real re- way to, uh, you know, theorize, prove or disprove that. So some of the leading examples are. Of course, one of the prevailing theories suggests that uh, religious fervor played a pivotal role. Salem Vidges, Salem village was deeply religious the puritanism permeated daily daily life the fear of the devil was also pervasive and any deviation from puritan orthodoxy was viewed as a threat some argue that the trials were manifestation of zealous religious atmosphere the socio-political factors Salem village was plagued by you know many internal conflicts with you know factions vying for control of local institutions the witch trials coincided with a period of political instability the accusations and trials provided a convenient way for certain factions to discredit their rights rivals and gain power a substantial number of p- suspects in the witch trials witch trial cases of New England were women with usually unusually direct connections to property ownership this was often attributed to uh, specific circumstances such as the you know the absence of li- living husbands sons or brothers their relationship to property were and land were marked by distinct features instances of this phenomenon were particularly notable when the husbands themselves faced conviction or in cases where a woman as a widow assumed possession of her husband's assets po- posthumously these intricate dynamics surrounding pro- uh, property and legal ownership were understood by sheriff corwin demonstrating an acute awareness of these situations corwin following george jacob's arrest visited jacob's wife and claimed her wedding ring a possession deemed by english law to belong to george rather than her though laden with legal complexities these actions struck at the very foundations of colonial society challenging the established norms the significance of this tra- of this legal maneuvering Becomes clearer when considering the historical context. Individuals affected were often second or third generation settlers whose ancestors had brought valuable assets to the New World, passing them down to support subsequent generations. The colony had initially abandoned forfeiture laws to protect these uh, legacies. However, a se- seismic shift was occurring, disrupting these established principles. Ergot poisoning. A biological theory suggests that consumption of rye infected with the fungus ergot may have co- caused. You know, hallucinations, convulsions, and other symptoms attributed to witchcraft. However, this theory remains debated due to the lack of conclusive evidence. Uh, if you've seen the movie *Witch* by Robert Eggers, uh, there's a fantastic few easter eggs that point towards this kind of thing the witch is a horror film set in 1630s new england following a puritan family that faces supernatural forces after being banished from their colonial plantation the family settles near a dense forest when eerie occurrences begin to unfold as crops fail and their newborn goes missing family becomes more increasingly paranoid suspecting each other of witchcraft the film delves into themes of religious extremism folklore and supernatural building tension throughout atmospheric storytelling it explores the psychological unraveling of the family in the face of unknown and malevolent forces but there's an excellent shot of some of the corn that they were eating and a few scenes that you know this is supposed to demonstrate ergot mold on the crop and of course we know from the experiments episode that ergot was used to derive lsd the drug that also causes hallucinations and the like there's a documented plight of poor crops known at the time the winter before the trials was saw a lot of crops failing and a lot of and while the religious Religious zealots of the time saw this as a sign of devilish dominion. Modern interpretation posits that uh, the fungus could have led to mass hallucinations that spurred these moments. Social isolation also contributed. Salem Village was geographically isolated, leading to a tight-knit community where you know, rumors and suspicion could easily spread. The isolation may have heightened the paranoia and fear of outsiders, making it easier to label neighbors as witches. Mass hysteria also contributed or could be contributed to it fear can be contagious once the initial accusations surfaced a climate of fear and suspicion descended upon the salem people began to see witches everywhere and this is you know a collective hysteria snowballed resulting in accusations all over the place the late 17th century was also marked by economic hardships crop failures as mentioned and political turmoil exacerbated the community's stress Some argued that these economic strains may have contributed to scapegoating of suspected witches as they explain their troubles conveniently. Of course, it could be a solid combination of them all. I know personally, I believe that the ergot could have created the supernatural things that they have been seeing along with the follower effect and not wanting to be out on something that was happening. Throw that in with the socioeconomic differences and the constant fighting about property lines and how quickly the sheriff was about snatching everything up. And it all starts to make a lot of sense to me. I wonder if it was so obvious to those at the time, like, hard to say since most of them would have been scared to say anything contradictory to the intense puritanical laws at the time, but that's kind of what I was thinking. Now, some of the other famous witch trials in history, as we bring the narrative to a close, it's essential to recognize that such episodes of witchcraft accusations were not an isolated incident, like, Salem did not happen in a vacuum, it wasn't just, oh my god, this is crazy, witches, no, it was ongoing all across the world, um, history is, you know, Replete with instances where fear, superstition, and prejudice fuel accusations of witchcraft. We talked about one a couple weeks ago with uh, Joan of Arc. From European witch hunts to the 16th and 17th centuries, to the Pendle witch trials in England, and the witch trials in Hortzburg, Germany, countless lives were lost during uh, due to unfounded accusations. The Salem witch trials served as a microcosm of the broader phenomenon of witch hunts that span the centuries and continents. These trials serve as a stark reminder that the destructive potential of irrationality, intolerance, and unchecked power of the state. Understanding this dark history is vital to ensuring that that such injustices are not repeated and society progresses. You know, towards more just and rational, uh, rational future. Throughout history, the witch trials have uh, occurred in various parts of the world, reflecting deep-seated fear, superstition around the concept of witchcraft. These trials were often characterized by hysteria, persecution, trial, uh, tragic consequences. Like I said, while Salem witch trials are the most well-known, there's a a whole bunch of them. The European witch hunts uh, peaked around 15th and 18th centuries, as we learned in the uh, Joan of Arc episode. It could have been started from there. Uh, These stand in one of the history's most extensive witch trials. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals, mostly women, were accused of practicing witchcraft and subject subjected to uh, brutal trials leading to widespread executions you know key european witch hunts occurred in germany france and scotland the pendle witch trial in 1612 in england the pendle witch trials in length in england are famous for brutality 12 people including men and women were accused of witchcraft and brought to trial unlike salem where most accused were women the pendle trial had more balanced gender ratio several individuals were executed leaving you know a dark mark on this English history. And before the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts Bay Colony had a you know, history of witches, uh, witchcraft accusations. Execution of Margaret Jones in 1648 marked one of the first witch trials in the uh, New World. Those earlier events may have influenced the trajectory of Salem. A lot of whisperings and murmurs of the things happening going on you know, kind of led to it. Like, oh, okay, hey, you remember what happened to Margaret Jones? Like, getting crazy out there um so some significant differences and similarities between all of these different witch trials common elements accusations often emerged from religious fervor superstition social tensions obviously the use of spectral evidence confessions obtained under duress was common executions and harsh punishments were meted out leading to the loss of innocent lives innocent lives fear and mass hysteria were central in all of these differences geographical variations you know, obviously, in the different regions, pretty big difference. The gender balance one is pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, it there's still, like, a lot of women who were killed or a lot of like men who were killed in salem but it was mostly women right so going back to the was it the pendle trials that had a pretty more balanced one that's kind of interesting and then the uh, legal procedures the legal systems and trials procedures uh were different in the different areas mainly because of the different eras but also just because of where they were and then the duration obviously the european witch hunts spanned centuries Salem witch trial was one year um which i guess is good You wouldn't want that kind of thing going on for too long, I suppose. But there we have it you know the intriguing and haunting tale of salem witch trials what a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions that is a chapter of history that's just as baffling as it is chilling i suppose as we close this episode i can't help but reflect on the lessons we can draw from this dark period in colonial america The salem witch trials are a stark reminder of the power and fear of, and the fragility of justice when fear takes the reign it's a testament to the danger of scapegoating tragic consequences of unchecked paranoia but it's also a story of resilience and ret- you know redemption over time some accused were exonerated and the you know the scarred but not broken community sought to heal its wounds the salem witch trials as harrowing as they were offer us a glimpse into the human capacity for cruelty and also compassion they offer several enduring lessons for society the protection of the civil liberties the trials underscored the importance of protecting civil liberties and ensuring you know fair and impartial legal system (laughs) most most importantly you know making sure that it you, your judge judges and bloodthirsty safeguards against unreliable evidence spectral evidence and presumption of innocence innocent till proven guilty are crucial to prevent miscarriages of justice trials demonstrate the need for critical thinking and tolerance in times of crisis you know the danger of demonizing scapegoating marginalized groups were tragically evident in Salem. Society must also remain vigilant against fear mongering and manipulation by those in power. You know, Salem witch trials show how easy fear can be exploited for personal gain. Other things I wanted to reflect upon are, you know, both Giles Corey and George Burroughs defiant yet both took, you know, different approaches for their actions against the uh, machine that swallowed them. Giles taking a stoic approach, while Burrow's defiant and logical both failed in the end, but I think it's, you know, true bravery to do either in the face of what was happening, especially at the point where they saw people hang already. They knew, like, it was like, okay, is this, is this fruitful? We don't know, but I want to thank each and every one of you for joining me today. Thank you for, uh, you know, your support. I i truly could not do it without anybody you know supporting me i do appreciate all of you um you know remember to uh keep the reviews coming in send in your send in your topic suggestions remedial scholar at gmail.com share with your friends you know spread the (laughs) spread the wealth you know and next week we got uh, the uh the donner party so (laughs) we're gonna keep the uh the creepy and horrific continuing for the so so far anyway um Yeah, Donner Party, you don't remember. The uh, infamous Donner Party, finding a secret route, basically. The Hastings Cutoff to uh, their way out west to California Way. And uh, they mistimed it. It uh, got a little dicey. And they ended up frozen in uh, the winter in the uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains. And that's not a good place to be. Uh, The infamous Donner Pass. I've driven through it many times. And it's it's a beautiful area. But uh, some pretty, uh, pretty gnarly stuff happened there. So, anyway, that's what we got going on next week. And I hope you, you know, return. Join me with that. Goodbye. We'll see you next time.